How many of you have ever gotten ready, really ready for something big? I remember when we were getting ready for our firstborn. We had the, the crib assembled. We had the swing and the bassinet assembled and put in their places. We had all of the toys put, put away. We had, we had the drawer full of baby clothes and baby blankets and baby wipes. You know that you can never have enough baby wipes, right? Like you go through them like a, every minute you need a new one. We had a corner of the closet set aside for diapers and wipes and everything else. And, and we had one of those mobiles, one of those musical mobiles that we put over the, over the crib that had Winnie the Pooh and, and all his friends. And, and we, we were ready. We had a bag. And it was a change of clothes and a book and a, some snacks. And, and we had some diapers and, and we had odds and ends ready for whenever the baby comes. Because when the baby comes, the baby comes. And, and you have to be ready. Whether you're ready or not, the baby's coming. So we were ready. Had the bag, bag packed. We had everything ready. We knew what we were doing. We knew where we were going. Have you done that before? Have you gotten ready for something big like that? We, there's lots of things we anticipate, lots of things that we eagerly await, lots of things that we get ready for, and most of those things are good. Can I ask this morning, have we gotten ready for the return of Jesus? Do we live our lives in anticipation for the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? When was the last time, aside from this sermon series, when was the last time our minds drifted to heaven, to our new home, to the time when Jesus will come back to take us home? We've been in a sermon series called All Things New, and we've looked at the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, and we've seen how the story ends. We've seen Jesus defeat sin and death and the devil. We've seen a new heaven and a new earth. We've seen new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, which is speaking about the church, coming down out of heaven, adorned beautifully with jewels and gold, sparkling, magnificent. We've seen how this new city was like a temple garden filled with the river of life that runs down the center of the city. And on either side of its, this river grow the tree of life. And we saw last week how at the end of it all, we will see Jesus face to face. Amen? And that we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. That would have been a great place to end the book of Revelation, wouldn't it have been? But there are 16 more verses we have to deal with. 16 more verses that the Apostle John writes. 16 more verses that essentially create an epilogue. Why an epilogue? John writes these 16 verses to remind us that the book of Revelation isn't primarily about what is coming to take place, even though that's what it is about. It's not primarily about us trying to decode when all these fit and what things are happening when and who's doing what. The primary purpose of the book of Revelation is Jesus. The primary reason that this book was written is so that we don't lose our focus on the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. That this world has so much suffering, so much temptation, so much persecution, so much pushback to the gospel of Jesus Christ that this book reminds us that we should never lose hope. 
that we should hold on to the one who loved us and gave us his very life. That we should hold on just a little longer because he is coming back. Amen? And he is coming soon. And when he does, there won't be any more tears. There won't be any more sorrow. There won't be any more death. We will see him face to face and he will make all things new, all things right, all things good. Amen? That's what the book of Revelation is about. So as John gets all of these magnificent visions and hears all these amazing things and records all of them down for us, it's to fuel him and to fuel us and our motivation to live for him, to worship him, to honor him, to hold on to him, no matter what happens in life. If, you're not, if you haven't turned there already, we are in the last few verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. That would be Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse number 6. And as we look at these last 16 verses, the Apostle John is going to challenge us. Challenge us to live ready, but ultimately he is going to challenge us to live in anticipation of Jesus' return. That we are to live in anticipation of Jesus' return. And as we look at these verses, I want to share with you three things we should do to be ready, to stay ready, to stay living in anticipation of Jesus' return. And the first is to live and to keep God's word. The first is to keep God's word. I'm in Revelation chapter 22, verse number 6. And he said to me, that is, the angel speaking for Jesus, that angel said to me, John, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at, to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. There are seven beatitudes throughout the book of Revelation. We're going to find the last two in these 16 verses. In fact, beatitude or blessing number six is found in verse number seven where it pronounces a blessing on those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. The word keep means to guard, to protect, to observe. And in the context of, of this blessing, it means obedience. It means we are to obey what is written in the, in the prophecy of this book. Why should we keep the words of this book? Because in verse number 6, Jesus says that these words are trustworthy and true. Why are these words trustworthy and true? Because of the one who spoke these words to John. And who's the one who spoke these words to John? It's Jesus. Have you ever known Jesus to say anything but the truth? Have you known Jesus to promise something and not come through on it? No, every word of Jesus has been true. Everything he has promised is true. It is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Every time Jesus has said something, it is absolutely true. We can count on him because he is faithful and true. And because he is faithful and true, these words are faithful and true. 
On top of that, if you notice, the, we can keep these words because these words are from the same God who empowered the Old Testament prophets to prophesy. You know that in the Old Testament, over and over again, God would speak to prophets, to men who would write down his words, who would predict things that, that were to come. You remember Elijah standing in front of wicked King Ahab and, and telling him, it will not rain in this land for three years. And that's exactly what happened. Isaiah predicts that if the nation of Israel doesn't repent and return to God, the doom is awaiting, that the nation would be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. Jeremiah foretold that the exile of the people of Israel would last 70 years. That's exactly what happened. Daniel was shown the rise and the fall of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome hundreds of years before they existed, and it's exactly what happened. Over and over again, God speaks to the prophets about things that are to come. They write it down, and those things happen just as they predicted. The same God who spoke those words is, is the same God who's speaking these words. And if we can trust them back then, we can trust them today. These are faithful and true. In other words, when Jesus says these words are faithful and true or trustworthy, he's saying, I'm Jesus Christ. I approve this message. That's what he's saying. We can count on him because he's never failed us. By the way, even the angel who is the intermediary between Jesus and John, even he validates this message. John hears all of this stuff and sees all of this stuff. He's so overwhelmed by everything that's going on that he's seen. He has to worship and so he just starts to bow down and worship the angel and the angel says, stop! Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant. I'm created. Don't worship me. Worship God. It's a good reminder we're, we aren't to be caught up by the messenger. We aren't to be caught up by the things around us. We aren't to be tempted to worship the things that this world has to offer. We are to worship God alone, amen? Because he alone is worthy of worship and praise. He alone can satisfy like no other. He alone has done what only he can do and none other. We worship God alone. In verse number 10, John is told to not seal up the words of this book. That's interesting because this is directly a counterpoint to what was told to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel received these revelations, these prophecies, Daniel was told, seal up the words of this book because the time is not at hand yet. But here, things are different, aren't they? John, said, John is told, don't seal up the words of this book. Why? Because the time is at hand. The time is near. The end of history is about to come. The culmination of all of the story of God is about to be fulfilled. Don't seal up these words. Open it up and pe let people read. Let people see the plan of God for the ages. Don't seal up the words of this book. And as a result, Jesus tells us, blessed is the one who keeps, who obeys the words of the prophecy of this book. You see... That's a blessing on those who obey, who do the work that God has said to do in this book. Theologically speaking, that, that's like saying sanctification follows and flows out of justification. That's a fancy way of saying what we do flows out of who we are. 
In other words, the things that we do, the good works that we do, the service, the ministry, the, the missions, the things that we do in our life that glorify God, all of those things are empowered by the Spirit of God, but those things happen after we have first been convicted by that same Spirit and have given our lives to Jesus Christ and we have accepted the free gift of salvation found only in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That grace of God that works in our lives is what empowers us to live in obedience to this word. So don't neglect this word. Study it. Learn it. Read it. Submit to it. Obey it. That we respond to the grace of God by living in obedience to God's word. But there's a problem. The problem is we live in a world that's full of distraction, full of danger, full of temptation. We're tempted to think that if we just compromise our faithfulness to Jesus, that perhaps we'll get that promotion. We're tempted to think that perhaps there is something to having all the toys. We're tempted to think that perhaps there is something to having possessions and power. But can I just warn you, church? This world can never deliver on its promises, can it? The Bible says this world is fading away. That there is nothing in this world that will last. It is here today and gone tomorrow. The only thing that lasts is God and his word. So read it. Study it. Obey it. Submit to it. Let the words of this book saturate us. Let it mold us, shape us, and make us the people that God wants us to be. We live in anticipation of his return when we live in obedience to the words of this book. The second way in which we can live in anticipation of Jesus' return is to wash our robes. I'm in verse number 12. It says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, what in the world does Jesus mean by saying he is coming soon? Does he mean soon like when I am at home and I say, it's time to go, and one of my kids who shall remain, remain late, nameless says, I'll be ready in just a minute. I need to go change and do my hair. I'll be down soon. Right. That means I have time to get something out of the freezer, heat it up, eat it, clean up, and still be ready before they come down. Is that what soon means? Behold, I am coming soon. There's a sense in which Jesus has already come in local and expressed ways. Let me explain that. When Jesus says he has come, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, Jesus writing to the seven churches tells them that there's some issue in their, in their churches, in their lives. They are to repent to come back to Jesus, to make things right. Then he says, if they don't repent, he will come to them in judgment and he will remove their candlestick. You remember that? There is an idea in which Jesus comes in judgment if we don't repent, if we don't shape up. In the church to Laodicea, when Jesus writes to them, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears me knocking and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. Every time you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, every time you feel the, the hand of God tugging at your heart, Jesus has come to you. Jesus has come in a localized way to you to draw you to him. There are expressed local ways in which Jesus comes. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to protect, to comfort, to judge, and to conquer. All of these are local and express ways. But there's an ultimate and final coming that will come at the end of time. When Jesus will come, when the trumpet of the Lord will sound, when the voice of the archangel will ring out, when the dead in Christ will rise, when we will see him face to face, on that day death will be no more. On that day there will be no crying. On that day there will be no sorrow. On that day there, oh come on church, you got to be excited a little bit for that day. I'm ready. How about you? I'm like, yeah, but I got something to do today. I mean, look at the time. My roast is ready. No, no. <laughs> He's coming soon. Soon can mean imminent. He can come before your roast is ready. He can come while you're sitting at lunch. He can come while you're in the parking lot. He can come tonight. He can come tomorrow. He can come next week. He can come next year. You don't know when he'll come, so stay ready. He is coming soon. Amen? His coming is imminent. And that's why he tells us to be ready to stay obedient. In verse number 12, you see that when he comes back, he isn't coming back empty-handed. He's coming back with rewards in his hand for the good works that we have done. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Where the Apostle Paul tells us that at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, he will take all of our good works, all the good things that we have done, and he will pass them through fire. And all those things that we've done for Christ, all those things that we've done with the right motives, all those things that we've done in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, all of those things will pass through the fire and they will last. And those are the things that he will reward us for. And then in verse number 13... Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All of these are titles that God the Father applies to himself in the Old Testament. But all throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus has applied those same titles to himself, indicating that he also is God. He is divine. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. So when Jesus says he is the beginning... It doesn't mean that he is the first in a series or the first in a succession. What it means is that he is the source of all things, the one from whom all things flow. Daryl Johnson writes it this way, this is a radical claim. Everything has its source in Jesus Christ. Everything finds its pattern, its way of being in Jesus Christ. Everything in the universe is stamped with the character of Jesus Christ. Every person on this planet owes her or his existence to Jesus Christ and finds his or her pattern for living in Jesus. Jesus is the beginning. He is the source of all things. But not only is he the source, he is the end. The end speaks of having purpose. That he is the purpose and the object and the ultimate aim of everything. One theologian puts it this way. Jesus is the inherent destiny of all creation. 
Jesus is not only the one who created you and through whom you came, but he is the one to whom you are going. He is the one before whom you will stand, the judge who will take a measurement of you. Jesus is the one for whom and by whom and through whom you and I have been made, which is why our hope rests on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is everything in between. Praise God for Jesus. <clears throat> <clears throat> Verse number 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here we find the seventh and final beatitude, a blessing on those who wash their robes. Now this doesn't mean we have to do laundry in heaven. <clears throat> That's not what it means. This is a reference to the cleansing system found in Scripture. The Bible says that there is no one good, no, not one, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that all our righteousness is like filthy rags, that there is none who can approach a holy and righteous God on our own merit, on our own behalf, with our own worth. No one can, because he is holy and we are not. But see, God doesn't want to leave us that way. He loves us too much. That's why he made a way. That's why Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God invites us to come, to come with our sin, to come with our dirt, to come with our filth, to come with all of the mess that we have made. And he says, come, wash your robes in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's a song that asks the question, what can wash away my sins? What's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood on a cruel cross so that you and I, who are filthy, unworthy, dirty, can bring our sins, and he will wash us. It's not something we do. It's something he does on our behalf because of what he has done for you and for me. Wash our robes. He forgives our sins. Have you washed your robes in the blood of Jesus? Have you come to the cross? Have you bent your knee? Have you accepted Jesus by faith? When you do, your sins will be forgiven, your robes will be washed, and you will be ready and, and prepared for the coming of the Lord. No matter how dark your sins may be, no matter how horrible or terrible they may be, his blood washes us white as snow. Living in anticipation of his coming, we need to live in obedience. We need to have our robes washed, but lastly, we need to come to the Lord. Notice verse number 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There are two final invitations given in these verses. Two 
Invitations that are all in the present tense, which means these invitations apply today. The first invitation comes from the Spirit and the Bride. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit, of course, is talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit says, come. Every single one of us who has ever responded to the call of the Spirit in our lives has heard the whisper of the Spirit in our lives. It came a million different ways at various times in our lives, and we heard that still whisper of the Spirit saying in our hearts, come. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who has the answer to the sins in your life who can make you whole again. Come. The Spirit says, come. But not only the Spirit, the bride says, come. Remember who the bride is? The bride is us. The bride is the church. It's each one of us. It's talking about the corporate church. The church says, come. The church, empowered by the Spirit, is, the, has the same responsibility as the Spirit to offer the invitation for people to come. That's why we support missions. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we support Pastor Kim. That's why we sent short-term missions, because we as a church are responsible to tell the world, come, don't miss this. We have the answer. It's in Jesus Christ. Come, don't miss out. The Spirit and the bride say, come. But there's a second invitation, and that is let the one who hears say, come. It was the corporate church and the spirit that offered the first invitation. This is to each one of us individually. Each one of us that has responded to the spirit, each one of us that has come, each one of us that has come to faith in Jesus Christ, who has received the forgiveness of sins, who has accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, each one of us individually have a responsibility to do the same thing, and that is, to offer the invitation to come, to come. We are to go into our world, to go to our neighbors, to our coworkers. Perhaps you are led to go work with Pastor Kim in Liberia. I'm sure he would love that support. You can see him afterwards. Perhaps there's someplace else that God is, call, God is calling you to, but you and I are called individually to say to the world around us, come. Come to church with me. Come to Woodside. Come see what God is doing. Come hear the word of God opened. Come hear the gospel proclaimed. Come see what God has done and is doing in my life. Come! That's the invitation we are called to give. Notice that this invitation is for all those who are thirsty to come and drink. Whenever the Bible talks about thirst, it's a metaphor, it's metaphorical. For having that deep-seated longing in our hearts that only God can fill. And if you have that longing, Jesus says to you, come. Come and drink from the water of life that is free. You know, we go out and about and we go buy a bottle of water. We pay what? $3 for it? If it has some electrolytes in it, it probably costs $5. If you're on a short-term mission trip, perhaps you're uh, out in Liberia with Pastor Kim or perhaps you're in Haiti or some other short-term mission location and you're dying of thirst, how much will you pay for a bottle of clean water? Whatever they charge. You will pay through your nose to get good water, right? 
How much would you pay for the water of life? Nothing. It is free. It isn't cheap, but it is free. Why is it free? Because God sent Jesus to a cruel cross to die on that cross, not because he was guilty, but because you and I were guilty. He shed every last drop of his blood to pay the penalty that you and I could not pay to, so that you and I could come to the waters of life and have it for free. We don't have to do anything. All we have to do is come and kneel and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done. And Jesus says, drink. Drink to your fill. Drink to your satisfied. Drink as he washes your sins free and clear. Come to the waters. It costs nothing. But you might be sitting here thinking, but, but I don't understand all of it. I've got a million questions. That's okay. Come anyway. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, come only after you figured it all out. It says, come, all who desire, come. doesn't matter that you have questions. Come, drink, and be satisfied. Perhaps you're saying, yeah, but you don't know me. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the mess I've made. You don't know how bad my life is. I haven't cleaned anything up. That's okay. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say only those who are worthy and have cleaned up their lives come. It says all who want forgiveness, come, come, come and drink from the waters of life and live. Verse number 18, John continues to write, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. These verses have been interpreted by all kinds of interpreters and commentators in various ways. Let me give it to you, my take. What John is saying is don't distort, don't dilute, and don't teach something different than what's in this book. That we, though we may not understand all of it, and even though there are things in here that make us uneasy, we are not to conform this word of God to our lifestyle or to our culture's lifestyle. As one preacher put it, he said, the Bible has to be the bedrock on, our, on how our lives, our homes, and our nation is built. If we stray from it, we do so at our own peril. We don't conform the word of God to culture. We conform culture to the word of God. Amen? Amen. Verse number 20, the last two verses. John writes, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The Bible ends with a promise and a reminder. The promise is, surely I am coming soon. John can't help but say, amen, come Lord Jesus. That phrase, amen, come Lord Jesus, is the Aramaic word maranatha. Can you say it with me? Maranatha. It means even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the promise. He is coming soon. Maranatha. But there's a promise. There's a reminder. The reminder is that the Bible ends with a beautiful word. It's grace. You see, we can't come to God without grace. We cannot be the part of the family of God without grace. We can't receive forgiveness of our sins without grace. It is the unmerited of an almighty, favor of an almighty God extended to those of us who don't deserve it and never will. But he loves us so much, he gave us his grace. 
Friends, have you accepted the grace of Jesus Christ? Grace that found its culmination on the cross of Jesus Christ, where he paid the penalty that you and I couldn't for our sins. Have you washed your robes in the blood of Jesus? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins? If not, can I ask you to come to know Jesus Christ today? Won't you confess your sins? Won't you repent of those sins? Won't you ask Jesus to come into your heart, into your life, to be the Lord and the Savior of your life? The Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your sins will be washed white as snow. You'll be given access to the river of life and you can drink until you're satisfied. And you will have a destiny in heaven with him forever. If you would like to know Jesus Christ by faith, there will be people at the front who would love to introduce Jesus to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's live in anticipation of his coming. He will come soon. That means at any moment, he can crack the midnight sky and come. And he'll come for you and for me. On that day, there won't be any more tears. On that day, there won't be any more arthritis. On that day, there won't be any more cancer. On that day, there won't be any more death. On that day, there won't be any more crying. On that day, there will be nothing but Jesus and his face whom we will see face to face forever and ever and ever and ever. Maranatha. Amen.